Real quick, before we get started, I want to share a free resource I have to help you get better outcomes for your clients. The Visceral Referral Cheat Sheet will teach you the connection between common musculoskeletal pains and movement dysfunction and the associated visceral organs. Using this cheat sheet will allow you to make sure no stone is left unturned when creating a true whole body treatment plan of care that will get you great results for your clients. Head on over to unrealresultspod.com to download your free cheat sheet today or click on the link in the show notes. Hey there and welcome. I'm Anna Hartman and this is Unreal Results, a podcast where I help you get better outcomes and gain the confidence that you can help anyone, even the most complex cases. Join me as I teach about the influence of the visceral organs and the nervous system on movement, pain, and injuries, all while shifting the paradigm of what whole body assessment and treatment really looks like. I'm glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Unreal Results Podcast. This week, this week, we're talking about the upper extremity. Um... We're going to kind of talk about it in general, but really the theme is going to be learning about why when you have an issue in the upper extremity, you probably won't be starting in the upper extremity itself for treatment. I'd say almost never is that the case, even post-surgical even post-acute injury, even like an injury where like you fell on an arm or fell on your shoulder or got hit with a ball or even those things, more than likely, you're still not going to start treatment right in that spot. So we're going to talk about that concept because that might be completely new to you. And I would say that that is probably one of the biggest differences between when I see a shoulder issue nowadays versus back in the day before I learned osteopathic work of the Burrell Institute and integrated it into my practice. So... Let's just get into it. The upper extremity, so we're going to, the upper extremity is the entire upper extremity. That would be where the upper extremity attaches, which is at the sternoclavicular joint. That is where the upper extremity meets the axial skeleton. That is the only joint articulation of the upper extremity like bony joint articulation, Um, and then extends into then the scapular or AC joint, the scapular thoracic joint, the glenohumeral joint, the elbow joints, and the wrist and hand. So that is what I mean when I mean the upper extremity. The... When we look at the upper extremity, just from a straight up visceral refer pain referral pattern 
What usually comes out is when it's right shoulder issue, pain, we'll say pain, we're sticking with pain for right now, this current conversation, right shoulder pain is almost always from the liver. Always has a liver component to it. Left shoulder pain is often the stomach, spleen, or the heart. And the elbows don't have, typically don't have a visceral referral from a pain standpoint, like a visceral organ referral pain standpoint. And then the hand and wrists, or the wrist and hand, when it's the left wrist and hand, it's typically the heart. And when it is the right wrist and hand, it's typically the lung. Actually, I believe maybe the left hand could also be left lung as well as heart. But if you want to learn more about, I mean, I'm going to share more about it, but also it's a good to share this book. Uh, this book is a great book. Um, it's from Jean-Pierre Barral, and it's called Understanding the Messages of Your Joints for the Prevention and Care of Joint Pain. So this specifically, you can look up joint by joint and see what visceral organ refers to that area or emotional type thing refers to that area. So it's not like the most resourceful book in terms of like, here's what to do and how to treat it, but it is a good reference if you want to know these connections. Now, let's talk about, well, the reason why there are common visceral pain patterns is also part of the reason why the visceral pieces are going to come up when it comes to pain secondary to movement dysfunctions of the upper extremity as well. Because we look at the visceral organs and we look at the way they refer to the upper extremity and it's it comes down to the nerves that innervate or, or yeah, the nerves that innervate the visceral organs and their containers from a sensory standpoint. So these are going to be the organs that are innervated by the phrenic nerve and the vagus nerve. So specifically the phrenic nerve, the right phrenic nerve especially is a sensory nerve to the upper abdominal peritoneum as well as in the mediastinum of the thoracic cavity and the pleura. So the, the phrenic nerve is going to be sensitized when there is an issue around the liver, around uh, the gallbladder, around the duodenum, the pancreas, the stomach, and all of the area of those organs, right? So the upper peritoneum, so the ligaments between those organs, the hepatic duodenal ligament, the gastric hepatic ligaments, the gastric duodenal ligaments, the suspensory ligaments uh, holding the things into the diaphragm, the underneath the diaphragm itself, right? That upper peritoneal area is one of the main sensory nerves is the phrenic nerve. Another one of the sensory nerves, the most, the more famous of the two of the nerves is the vagus nerve. 
And so when there is something wrong with the organs, right, either the organ is diseased or inflamed or not moving well or just not functioning well, the message gets relayed on the vagus nerve and on the phrenic nerve up to the brainstem and the cervical plexus. And then the cervical plexus, and specifically the phrenic nerve in this sense, shares nerve roots with the brachial plexus. That means that anything along the brachial plexus, which is the nerves that go to the upper extremity, can be affected. In addition to that, maybe more even common from a movement dysfunction standpoint, is the cervical plexus nerve and the the nerve roots that the phrenic nerve comes from also give off this nerve called the nerve to the subclavius. The nerve to the subclavius is also the nerve that goes and innervates the SC joint. So not only does it innervate the subclavius muscle, which is the muscle beneath the clavicle, but it innervates the sternoclavicular joint. And the sternoclavicular joint is the joint that dictates movement of the entire upper extremity because that is where we are connected, right? This joint is reflected in all the ranges of motion of the scapula. So in order for the scapula to elevate, depress, protract, retract, anterior tilt, posterior tilt, it needs to have good function of the SC joint. So if that joint is getting mixed messages from the influence from the phrenic nerve, from the viscera, then it's going to affect the motor control of the upper extremity. Why does this why is this interesting too? Because when we look at the scapula thoracic joint, which is the, you know, a false joint because it's not an actual bony articulation, but the dynamic interaction between the shoulder blade and the rib cage, which is what dictates where the arm bone and forearm and hand get placed in space. That motor control is very dependent on all of these good motor patterns and musculoskeletal balance of everything, as well as the movement of the SC joint. So oftentimes when we see scapulothoracic motion that is not good, right, or often called scapular dyskinesis, we blame the muscles. We say the muscles aren't strong um, they're, or they're not turned on or they're too active or underactive or inhibited or whatever, right? But oftentimes they're not able to do their job because the clavicle, specifically at the SC joint, is not able to move very well. Then when we get the fine-tuning motion of upward rotation and downward rotation, that motion is happening at the AC joint. But the AC joint is very dependent on what happens at the AC joint, right? So again, or the SC joint. So again, if, if our SC joint is not free to move and does not have a healthy message to it, then everything else down the chain falls apart. 
especially too when we consider that a lot of the input to those muscles that control the scapulothoracic movement come from nerves that are part of the brachial plexus. So then we have kind of a double whammy from the influence of the viscera is that maybe that means the SC joint is not moving very well because the subclavius is not moving or just the joint itself is got a funky message, right? But then too, it has, it shares nerve roots with the brachial plexus. So then the message to all of those terminal nerve branches at each level, because we start, we're starting at the root level. So the roots, the trunks, the divisions, the cords, and the terminal branches are all affected by this message. And it's those terminal branches or those branches that come off the, the roots or the trunks or the cords that go to the 18 muscles that attach to the scapula. Those 18 muscles that attach to the scapula is what gives that fine-tuning balance of mobility and stability to the upper extremity. So then all of the theories of why someone might have shoulder pain due to poor scapulothoracic control, they're still true. But the way you go about treating them are different. You're not going to jump to smashing a muscle, dry needling a muscle, cupping a muscle, or strengthening with like traditional scapular stability exercises right out of the gate because you're, you see this cascade of how it's influenced by the other stuff going on in the body. Now, also, it's important to remember that you can have other stuff going on And this is why it's like, okay, well, Anna, sometimes maybe it's not a visceral thing. Then can I go to the shoulder first? No, because most of the time, if it's not a visceral thing and it's not the upper, like it can't, it's usually not the upper extremity itself, then that means it's coming from the cervical spine or the head and cranial nerves, right? Because the head is often placing itself wherever it needs to be to keep your eyes horizontal, right? like parallel to the horizon to keep your body level. And so sometimes like if our eyes are not functioning well or our smell's not going well or our hearing or our vestibular system off is off, we'll change the position of our head and neck. And then that also can change the input through the brachial plexus or just change the length tension relationship of the muscles that go attach from the spine, from the cervical spine to the shoulder blade or to the shoulder itself. The other thing that happens is issues down in the lower extremity, right? In the lumbopelvic area, the rib cage, the, the lower extremity itself. If these things are altered, right? If, if we're protecting a viscera down lower and we're in a protection pattern around that, and we cannot move through normal ranges of motion, then this gets translated to the shoulder because, again, 18 muscles are attaching to the shoulder blade. And those 18 muscles are attached to ribs. They're attached to spine. They're attached to, um, like, other muscles that connect into factual change that go across our abdomen, go across our back to the opposite side hip and down the leg. And so oftentimes, too, what we see with shoulders 
or upper extremity issues is it tends to then that would fall under the category of like kinetic linking issues. And oftentimes people think of kinetic linking when it comes to throwing or like swinging a golf club or a bat or something like that, which is a great example of it. But just life, like in just lifting up my arm, I have to stabilize my core. And stabilizing my core means I have to ground through my pelvic control on one side and ground through the leg on both sides, really, to lift my arm up. And so sometimes when those things are compromised from a visceral issue or from just a a strength and stability issue, then our shoulder is compromised. So oftentimes the pathology comes out in our shoulder, but it's not where it's coming from, okay? So now the scenario of like more of an acute injury. So you fall on your arm or you um, land on your shoulder, you get hit with a ball or whatever, right? Or even you have surgery on something. Um, Then like, could you just treat that area? Well, yeah, you could just treat that area. But the question is, is it, is it, Is there other things that you could treat to support it? In this case, when we think about acute injuries like this, the first things we think about of like the best rehab plan is to decrease pain and to decrease swelling, improve range of motion. Knowing that those are our primary, three primary things, would it even make sense to go right to the area to do treatment? It doesn't because decreasing pain, for example. Pain is an output. So the best way that we can decrease pain, especially when it comes to something going on in that, is not to treat right in the area, but actually do other things. We can treat pain through interoceptive work. We could treat pain by improving cranial nerve function on the because the cranial nerves are in the area of the brainstem that is responsible for inhibiting pain, right? So it's the PMRF, the pons, pons, pondular, pongemedular, pongemedular, pons medular reticular formation. Mm. This is why we use acronyms because some words are hard. But basically, in this area of the brainstem, it is responsible for pain inhibition. Pain inhibition, this area of the brainstem is also where all of your cranial nerves live. So a quick, easy way to decrease someone's pain is to do cranial nerve work. The other things is just improving mechanoreception. How are we going to improve mechanoreception of the joints? Well, We have a bunch of joints that are uninvolved that we can get range of motion in, and that, too, decreases pain. Mechanoreception, proprioceptive information is like the love language to the body, and so the more sensory information we can get it, the pain decreases. So we have a lot of ways that we can actually decrease pain without ever even having to touch that body part because sometimes after injury, when you touch the body part that was just injured, that is a threat. Your body is on high alert protecting that area already. It is not going to um, respond well always to you touching the area um, and manipulating it a lot. It can. Some gentle movement in the area is great, but it's not always the best for everyone. 
Now, oftentimes, too, pain comes because of a lack of blood flow and lymphatic flow in the area, which is like this phenomenon of the swelling component, too. If we're going to decrease swelling and improve healing, right, because they go hand in hand. If you don't believe me, listen to the podcast I recorded about the swelling reduction protocol. Swelling and healing, uh, you're going to affect both, especially when you look at swelling as a systemic problem, not a, or systemic response. I don't even want to say problem because it's not a problem, but it's a systemic response, not just a problem at the area of injury. And so in order to support the area of injury, you're actually going to want to treat in other areas of the body to facilitate the systemic, the system-wide lymphatic and vascular flow. That's really going to make a difference. Those are the things that you want to do first before then going to the area of injury. And how great is that? If you could decrease swelling and decrease pain before you went to the limb and worked on range of motion, do you know how much easier the range of motion would come? Because now you've just taken their body from a sympathetic environment of like post-injury, post-surgery, post-protection, you've given it some messages to go into shift into the parasympathetic more safe response that is associated with rest, regeneration, healing, recovery, right? And when we feel safer, when we're in that mode of the nervous system, we instantly grant more mobility. So now instead of trying to do range, right, range of motion work on a painful, protected limb, now it's easy. You get to go through a really non-threatening range of motion, which again is mechanoreception, decreases pain even further, plus they have a positive movement experience, which means they're going to keep the range of motion, right? So whether it's a chronic pain or chronic like injury or acute When it comes to upper extremity, you're not going to start there first. You're going to treat there. It's not like I never treat the shoulder or never treat the elbow or hand or forearm. Of course I do. But it's not going to be the first place I treat. Almost always I'm treating something in the viscera first or the lower extremity or a systemic, right, system-wide thing like supporting lymphatic flow or vascular fluid flow, or even the cranium, the central nervous system, and the cervical dura first before I'm treating something in the upper extremity. This too is, it might not, well, you might have even recognized that when people come to you with shoulder issues, when you start in their thorax, you get better results, right? And starting in the thorax is not new information. So many times, so many times, people do this because we've learned, right? Thank you, Gray Cook, for the analogy of you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe, right? So we've learned that in order to have good stability, strength, and mobility in the distal parts, we need some proximal stability and control. So so often people start in the thorax or people start in the core, which is great. Also, we've learned over the years that overhead motion of the arm 
right, require some thoracic mobility because the shoulder blade lives on the thorax. So maybe you already did start in the thorax. Chances are when you started in the thorax or when you started in, a core, in the core, you noticed you had a better response in the extremity. I'm telling you, a deeper reason besides the reason of the proximal stability for distal mobility, besides that, there is a true reason for that. And it's this connection between the viscera and the uh, the the viscera and the cervical plexus nerves to the role of the sternoclavicular joint and the clavicle, as well as the relationship between the viscera and the cervical plexus, the vagus nerve and the cervical plexus, and the nerve roots that become the brachial plexus, which is full function of the upper extremity, right? So hopefully after hearing this, this gives you a new perspective of not only to never start at the area of injury or concern when it's upper extremity, but some spots to maybe consider starting instead. The beauty of how I teach in my movement rev education is with the LTAP, which is the assessment, the locator test assessment protocol, this helps us quickly figure out if somebody's coming in, so if this shoulder pain patient's coming in, to quickly identify, is it visceral, is it central nervous system, or is it a kinetic linking thing? And then we can get to work and have really quick results because we're getting right to the problem as opposed to doing like general thoracic mobility or general core control first before we're doing upper extremity stuff. More times than not, when somebody comes to, to me with an upper extremity thing, before I even end up touching their upper extremity, their pain is gone or their range of motion is significantly changed. This is great because then it sticks. When I can start treatment in the right spot, it sticks. So some really simple assessments to figure out where to start. And then we can go crazy with understanding the role of the sternoclavicular joint in scapular thoracic mobility and upward rotation and then stability and control of the glenohumeral joint, great motion of the elbow and the forearm, and then good wrist and hand mechanics, right? All of that good biomechanical stuff, which I love, by the way, is not so valuable if I don't consider the stuff before it. So that's it for this podcast. Next podcast, we'll talk a little bit more about this relationship between the sternoclavicular joint and the scapulothoracic joint because I got some information that I think is helpful. It's a little bit similar too if you want a little pre-precursor, if you want um, some pre-education for that next podcast, check out the Thoracic Outlet Syndrome podcast I recorded previously because it talks about this relationship too. See you soon.